Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Isaac DeVries, the host of today's episode, and we're talking with Dan Gilhooly and Frank Teutsch about their book, I Woke Up Dead, Psychoanalysis, Intersubjective Writing, and a Postmaterialist Model of the Mind. It was published by Rutledge in 2020. Dan is a psychoanalyst, an artist, and a teacher. He's published papers on the therapeutic process, dreams, and creativity, and is a practicing visual artist. He's a training analyst, a supervisor, and a teacher at the New York Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, and also at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies in New York. He's in private practice in Manhattan and also in Bellport, New York. Frank Teutsch is a writer living in Woodstock, New York. He's the author of The Journey West, and his second novel, tentatively titled The Look in Her Eyes, is in the editing stages. He's begun writing his third novel as well. He's also a composer of Transcendental Music, which he has recorded with the musical group Shining Path at Yucklive's Studios. Dan, Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Frank. So, Scandal, Scandal, uh, <laughs> not sure what terms you'd prefer, but in the traditional register, Dan, you're the analyst, and Frank, you're Dan's patient. And here we are talking about this book that you wrote together. So. How did the book come to be written? It was uh, really a project uh, between the two of us. Frank uh, consulted with me uh, several, I guess, 10 years or maybe 11 years ago. Uh, His son was sick with cancer, and initially he wanted treatment for his son, who he felt was depressed uh, and would benefit from treatment. But his son didn't want uh, to be seen by a therapist, and so Frank uh, stayed on and just talked about the challenges uh, and difficulties of dealing with this son Anders and, and Anders' cancer. After several years, Anders died. And uh, shortly thereafter, about a month after that, uh, I had a dream, I think on a Tuesday night or Monday or Tuesday night, of having woken up dead. And it was, a, I'd never had it. It was a dream that was an out of body dream where I left my body, rose above myself lying in bed. Uh, there was a sheet over me. I was looking down at myself in the dream. And I ch- went down and I checked. Uh, I, it was very easy, apparently, to be dead. I wasn't breathing. I lifted my hand. I, it was clear that I was dead. Uh, and I thought it was really quite effortless to be dead. Um, and it wasn't painful in the least. Uh, this was a sort of haunting dream for me. I'd never had one like it before. And at the end of the week, Frank came into the session and near the end of the session said, and I had a funny dream uh, at the beginning of this week in which I woke up dead. And I, I, I said, really? That's odd because I had, I had a dream in which I woke up dead in the beginning of the week. And we kind of, we briefly touched upon it, but it was never discussed. Um, and, and Frank just continued uh, with what he was, with, was discussing. But thereafter, the following week, Frank described the dream really as a turning point 
and began to write. Um, he began to write stories that would eventually become a novel, his novel, The Journey West. Um, and I, and the novel contained many very unusual things, a kind of, just as we apparently had had the same dream on this Monday night of Waking Up Dead, there were curious parallels in what Frank was writing that seemed to relate intimately to my life experience and my history. And so as he began to write these stories and bring them in and discuss them in therapy, I was captivated by the fact that he was writing in many, many respects about his, my personal history. So I began writing about his writing. So we had these two parallel tracks. He was writing a creative book and I was writing about him writing a creative book. And so that's how the project, that's what we came to call it, the project, project began. Is that how you remember it, Frank? <laughs> Are we out of time yet? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I I think that that is uh, you know quite the way I see it as far as the I woke up dead, which is actually the first line of the novel that right. I wrote in the journey west, and uh, you know these things became they were running along these parallel tracks almost like in parallel universes. Dan's away writing and thinking, and I'm writing, and a, a lot of the stories started to came about. Uh, they came about. And honestly, I got kind of bored with you go in, you sit down and you talk about what's going on in your life. I mean, after many sessions of that, I got I kind of got bored with it, you know, because I just think you just go over the same things again and again. And then all of a sudden, this kind of well of creativity came about. And through the stories, these little vignettes that I would write. It's much more interesting to me and what's much more revealing to me. And then I was quite pleased when uh, Dan was so open and welcoming that aspect. Like I would just come in and, and I would read the latest vignette and he would get a copy and we'd talk about what was happening in the story. Uh, and it, it, it gave me a little bit impetus to continue building on that. So you're you're talking about parallels a lot, right? I mean, parallel dreams, parallel writing, parallel lives. This this is an important aspect of your book. Oh yeah, I think very much. Um, there are any number of uh, this hap has happened continuously for I guess the seven years since this we've been working on this together that uh, remarkable uh, parallels between things that will happen during a week in my life and will happen in, in Frank's life, which we will discover when we have a session. Um, it, it's just these, they're uncanny, the number of things like this that happen. Uh, and they, they've characterized, I think, the therapy altogether. And I come to think of these things as characteristic of a particular kind of psychoanalytic therapy. What kind? Well, it's certainly what we do, it's called modern psychoanalysis, is which was my training, which is based on uh, the work of Hyman Spotnitz and his notion of a narcissistic transference, which is a shared mental space or a shared mind between um, the patient and the analyst. And so what you're seeing with these parallels are really manifestations of that shared mind. 
uh, which is sort of, in his view, the foundation of therapeutic action. This is how you experienced the treatment too, Frank? Uh, I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> and, what are you talking about? Uh, 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 I, you know, I, we throw the word entanglement out, and I know it's, it's, it's warmed its way into popular culture now, this quantum entanglement, and the Chinese are doing a lot of research in that. And, you know, they've added in a greater regard of distances, they've shown this entanglement thing. So I looked at it that way as this kind of consciousness entanglement that the two of us were experiencing. Now, it could be the same thing what in, a, in all aspects of what Dan just described. You know, So he's talking about it in his language. And meanwhile, I'm talking about it in a language that's makes sense to me and we always bridge that somehow and come to some point where we both understand what we're talking about right so this idea of entanglement really shows up in i want to say it's the second or third section of the book the book is kind of divided up into these these sections right where it's like the first is all this wild phenomena right that um is eerie, it's spooky, it's uncanny. And then there's like this second section of the book, which is quantum theory, right? I mean, it was like Freud wrote from the model of biology, biological evolution, that in the particular science, uh, a version of science at that time, Lacan picks up uh, a linguistic model. And you guys seem to have, you know, gravitated towards a quantum theory model to explain a lot of these kinds of spooky, shared telepathic experiences. Spooky that, action at a distance, right. That, right, that's what Einstein called it. Spooky right. action at a distance. Mm -hmm. So what's the, I mean, I have, let me, let me share this thing that, that keeps happening for me and you tell me if, if, I'm, if I've got it right. I, I have this experience where um, I'll be watching television or reading a book or something like that, and I will have this thought you know, this patient needs to pay me for the month or I need to get this paperwork from this person, right? And I'll get up to go to my phone and text the person and the patient has paid me. Right. This, yeah, it's, it happens all the time, right? Right. Yeah. I talked to my analyst about it. She says it's a psychic eclipse. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> you like that term? Psychic? Yeah, I like that. I may what do you like? that. I may yeah, still about my new novel. Okay. But, <laughs> What do you like about it? Well, you know, the way we looked at it, I, I just like the phrasing of it. I don't, you know, I didn't, it, you know, not so much the content, which I really don't care. I just, you know, it just, the, just the phrasing of it is really beautiful. But, you know, in a sense, the way I would think about something like that uh, would be, I believe that information passes both ways. It, it, you know, this whole time arrow thing. Is what I don't believe. So your future self communicated that piece of information to your present self. Yeah. Uh, I want you to say more about this because I think the moment in the book where I sort of gasped <laughs> was this moment where you wrote that the unconscious is actually in the future, right? It's not... It's not just like 
a repository for past experiences, but it's actually in the future and it's also not local. I really want to hear more. I, I think that's the, the key elements. The, these notions all came from Frank's writing. So Frank's writing, he, each week he would bring in his writing and he would write chapter after chapter. And the, his book evolved as a kind of science fiction sort of narrative. But I always assumed he was talking about the, his unconscious during the therapeutic process. And what he was really revealing was his unconscious mind. That's what was occurring. So uh, in Frank's writing, uh, the mind, uh, once the, his protagonist has died, his protagonist woke up dead, uh, and he's in this indeterminate state between death and life, um, he's in a state where time has collapsed. The present the past and the future all coexist simultaneously. And that's how I then came to consider that he was really describing the unconscious mind in which time all coexists, the past, the present, and the future. And you have access to all of that. All right. That's part of being alive and dead simultaneously. Another sort of central concept that, that comes from Frank's book is his protagonist has died and he woke up dead. Right. So, uh, it's the it's being in this indeterminate state between life and death, uh, in which you have access to time in that way and to experience that way. So I think Frank's explanation is perfect. You you uh, realized that you were going to get this information from the patient, right? That you that's what you were becoming aware of is the future. You you get up, go to the computer, or go to your phone or whatever, and you see you've gotten it. So is that how you see it, Frank? Yes, yeah, so that's why he gets the check every week. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, I need to think. I need to think about it more. Yeah, I, need to, yeah. I hope these. I hope yeah. the thoughts will come more frequently. <laughs> uh, you know the the physics of it. You know, not you know, a degree in mathematics, but I'm not a physicist. But you know, we're 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 captivated by the physics of it. Of, of this quantum world. And you know, since that, they've been trying to find the relationship between the quantum world and the macro world, right? And, and not have not been successful. But the key is that, you know, the things that we talk about are becoming, I, I, I think that, that they're coming to rise, that they're, they're coming about now, uh, that a lot of physicists are talking about this. And, uh, you know, I always talk about you, Everett. Uh, and right, right. You, mentioned, you write about him in the book. Who, who is Hugh Everett and why is he so important to you? Well, what, what's his significance? Well, <clears> there's <throat> a number of things. He's an iconoclast. Uh, and I think it, 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 his life is a, a really kind of an important thing. You, you know, you people are... You and Dan, I believe, are in the academic world, okay? And there's a whole set of rules and assumptions in that academic world. You, Everett, was the guy to say, I don't believe your assumptions. I had this whole set of assumptions. And what they did, they drove them out of physics. So there's a cautionary tale. Uh, you know, if you go against what the accepted belief system is, which I think what Dan has done here, and I don't know what the repercussions are going to be for that. You go against the, the 
you know, mainstream assumptions in any academic community, you know, we always want to think that there's this kind of dialogue that people seek truth and you, you know, through some kind of discussion and, and learning process that, you know, in a lot of ways it don't happen. So what happened to you, Everett, he was basically drummed out of physics for his belief that, uh, the, you know, they were searching for a reason why this wave function was collapsing to a single, when one observed, was collapsing to a single superposition. Okay, so that's basically what the measurement problem always was. You know, why does wave function, or whether it does, cause collapse of the, to a single unitary value? You said it never collapses. It doesn't collapse. You know, it, 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 uh, you know, it, it, it really just is part of a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger thing. You know, so it, you know, the universe. So we're not separate. The observer is not separate from this experiment. We're all part of this situation. So it, it gave rise mathematically, he showed that it's, the Schrodinger wave equation mathematically show that that it's possible there are infinite number of superpositions. So gave rise to his theory over a couple of drinks one night <laughs> and that, that you know that this the wave function never collapses and that there is an infinite number of possibilities for every every action. In the in the uh, Schrodinger cat sort of thought experiment, it quantum physics would say that in the indeterminate phase uh, for this cat who's been put into a, a, a container where there is a, a radioactive uh, substance which has a 50% chance of, of uh, decaying, at which point a Geiger counter will detect it, which will release, will ha- cause a hammer to drop, breaking a glass vessel, releasing a poison that will kill the cat. So the cat could, it's a 50% chance the cat could be dead or alive when you open up the container. Uh, that's holding the cat. So this was a thought experiment that Schrodinger came up with to sort of point out the absurdity of how could the cat be alive and dead simultaneously, which is, of course, is related to our dream of waking up dead. That's why it it figures in the book. But uh, what Everett says is that, no, no, what happens is in one universe, the universe bifurcates. In one universe, the cat is, in fact, alive. And in another universe, the cat is, in fact, dead. And these continue to exist uh, simultaneously as two parallel universes. And the observer himself also splits. And he, one f- portion of the observer heads with the alive cat, and one portion of the observer is there with the dead cat. So the multiverse model cause is really a, the notion that in a, a state of continuous productivity, all of these splits and bifurcations occur. And that... That's again this parallel universe notion. Parallel. So, do you do you do you think this is real? I mean, there's on the one hand, there are a lot of people who would say this is a really interesting metaphor and a helpful metaphor for thinking about, or it's a helpful model for explaining phenomena. But it sounds to me in your book that you actually are making a more substantial claim. It sounds to me that you're saying no, this actually is ontologically what's going on that we have many different universes we have their parallels they're overlapping they're you know 
it sounds like you really think that you're both alive and dead. Oh, I, I do. I have come to that conclusion. Have you, Frank? Well, I, I like the fact that it, it, in, in reality, I mean, the basis of it is a metaphorical tool that I use in the first vignette of the journey west, which is called Convergence. It's basically about two parallel universes touching like two tectonic plates. And there's a doorway that this figure is able to transverse from one universe into another. So in that sense, uh, and one actually overwhelms the other. And so I use that as a literary tool, and, but it basically, uh, I believe you ever it, uh, and that uh, you know not only, I guess in a way you know in the in one universe <laughs> they drove him out of physics, uh, but he then worked uh, at the Pentagon and came up with a uh, logical methodology for saving the planet, which I think was grossly misunderstood as much as his belief system in uh, uh, multi-universe. And that was mutual assured destruction. He was the author of that. So this idea of convergence, right? It's a, it's a major motif that sort of threads and stitches and sutures the book and, and also the, the theory together. Um, but it seems like it really illuminates a number of phenomena that we experience in, in sessions all the time, people that we work with. I'm thinking about mental breakdowns. I'm thinking about experience of doppelgangers, of psychic disintegration, parapraxies, there's cognitive failures, there's dream visitations, and especially things like dissociative identity disorder, or dissociative fugues, or these things like that. I mean, it sounds like that's the kind of phenomena you're talking about. Are you, are you finding that this, this, is that right? In the, in the book, I make those analogies. I point out that Searles' patient, uh, Joan Douglas, uh, could look at Searles and see, you know, a thousand different heads on Searles' body. And, uh, or or describe, you know, 10,000 different um, uh, characters or even multiple, many, a thousand different hospitals, Chestnut Lodge that she was in. And a way of, as some, you know, Searles would write that as she was with someone and as someone changed their mind, they, they got a new head. In other words, they became a different person. And so in many ways, although that you could call that schizophrenia, it could very well be that this is an example of a multiverse, that she's seeing these individuals bifurcating and splitting and becoming other versions of themselves. The, you know, the, as Frank would say, why so many physicists are subscribing to this is because the math all works out. You know, um, that's a very compelling aspect of Everett's theory, as fantastical as it sounds. It also becomes a metaphor to, to describe dissociative identity disorder, where you could have multiple versions of a self, right, uh, all coexisting in an individual. So, I mean, these are just ways in which you could apply that idea from physics in the, into the world of mental health. We do that in the book. 
Right, but it's it's also for both of you extraordinarily personal. Like it, it would it be okay with you if I read a section from the book? Yeah, so in the second chapter, you tell the story about your own father, Tom, right? And you end with the sequence of images that greet you every night as you fall asleep. They greet you in this sort of liminal space. And there, your identification with your father seems to be made real. You write that these images help you realize that you've become your father and are reliving parts of his past, right? You write, it's as though in this moment of extremity, when I grabbed his ankle and pulled his naked body back onto the bed, he grabbed me and slipped through my skin, still alive inside of me. And then each night he meets me on the edge of sleep. And Frank, you also talk about your son, Anders, who died, right? And yet you had a similar experience where this aspect of your son, Anders, his creative aspect, right, sort of came into you. This seems like, these seems like uh, really personal convergences. Can you speak to that? Go ahead, Frank. Why don't you address that? Uh, in a way, you know, I, I there is some psychological comforting. Don't you feel that about the multi universe? Like, oh, sure. That, you know, yeah. I mean that that I mean, you Everett said it himself, and I, I just had a little story about that. But you know, he was a very hard drinking, you know, obese and heavy chain smoker. It was a very unhealthy died at 51. But, you know, he basically would say that, you know, there is a universe where you Everett is a healthy guy who doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, and he eats well. Uh, yes. And I, I think know, it even goes like, further, Frank, in that I think you, you would claim that in one universe, you Everett never dies. You want, you know, okay. So continuing that thought, <laughs> right? Okay, what uh, was that? So in some universe, my son exists and he's alive and he's well and he's creating art. He was a very talented artist and musician, but he's creating his art and he's living his life. So in a way, you know, maybe it's it's a sort of a comfort, you know, to know that there's multiple things going on and. Uh, yeah, just a quick aside, a, a kind of a sad and beautiful story at the same time. His, Everett's daughter was greatly impacted by her father's death and, and was had a lot of mental issues. Uh, she ended up committing suicide. Uh, now, when Everett died in his will, he said he wanted his ashes thrown out with the garbage. And, uh, you know, his wife didn't comply for about a year. And then finally she took his ashes he threw him, and she threw them out. Well, in her suicide note, her daughter said that she wanted to be cremated and her ashes put out in the garbage because she wanted to end, it up, end up in the same universe as dad. And I thought that was a really kind of poetic uh, interpretation of you, Everett's many worlds. Uh, and uh, you know, I I continually have visits by these Jehovah Witnesses that come to my house, and I never chase them away because you know these 
spiritual people. But we, you know, we disagree on the same item. And I, you know, when they believe when you're dead, you just die and you're dead and you don't come back. There's no spiritual essence. There's nothing until the kingdom of Jehovah. I apologize to all the Jehovah witnesses out there. But our feeling is that I'm continually getting information from Anders, you know, that he's such a creative person. And uh, this creative process started basically when he passed away. The writing, uh, thinking about composing, all the music is an attempt to reach some space. And we believe that if I hit a note, it goes out there, you know, it goes out to the universe somehow, that, that, that note. So the same with the thinking and the writing, it goes out there and it's my way of sort of communicating to uh, him and him to me. Did you want to add anything to that, Dan? Um, in terms of um, my father, the story about my father, um, there's undoubtedly my father who died 54 years ago of, of a suicide. Um, my father undoubtedly lives within me and still lives within me now in that, in that sort of state that I was describing before sleep. It, I really, it took me years. I was having those repetitive experiences before going to sleep. And I realized that I was really experiencing the life that he had, not the life that I had had. Um, these were events that I was re-experiencing in my mind that I eventually came to realize were, historically speaking, events that he had actually experienced. Um, and it was because you always assume that everything that passes through your mind is your own and certainly a reflection of simply you. Uh, and it was a surprise for me to discover that these were really reflections of my father. Uh, and that's what it really I meant that he greeted me at the uh, edge of sleep. Um, so it is quite true that that my mother and father, though deceased, can, are certainly alive in my mind and certainly continue to sort of inform my choices and uh, the decisions I make in my life, for sure. You know, back in the 50s, there was this Harper's Bazaar article. Uh, If I remember correctly, I think it was titled The Jet-Propelled Couch. And it was this two-parter where this analyst talks about being working with this psychotic patient. And he really steps into the patient's world. And like in in a way that, you know, it really gripped me when I read it. And I... I had this, I, it, I think it's really clear in, in the book that you, Dan, got sort of induced into Frank's world, this, this quantum, and that, this like induction, this process of induction is so central to modern psychoanalysis, right? I'm, I'm wondering if if you could say more about induction and about convergence or not convergence, I'm sorry, uh, induction and entanglement, right? Cause these, these seem to be sort of at the, at the core of your way of thinking about transference and counter-transference and, and the ways that we have access to unconscious material. Right. These are, well, first thing I guess I would say is Frank alluded to before 
Frank has never been indoctrinated by me into psychoanalytic theory. We never discuss psychoanalytic issues of that or psychoanalytic theory in any way. So if he hears me talking about countertransference theory, it'll be the first time in his life that he ever heard me utter the word countertransference. Um, but the basic notion of countertransference theory in psychoanalysis is, in essence, there's something that Spotnitz would describe as objective countertransference in which you become the other person. Uh, so Robert Fleiss, the son of Willem Fleiss, who was Freud's confidant, becomes a psychoanal- psychoanalyst in America. And I think he writes in 46, he writes a paper, The Metapsychology of the Analyst, in which he describes the way in which the analyst, in the, his experience of the patient, he develops a dual consciousness. He becomes literally the patient while also being himself. Uh, so he, and that is, that's essential that you become the other. Um, so you could say that I become my father, it, uh, I become my mother at times. It's, this is just the nature. I, to some extent, I become Frank. Um, so I was very much, as you say, induced into Frank's world. I learned to think in Frank's uh, language. I, I learned to exist in that world. That was a, that's the essence, really, of this therapeutic process, that there has to be this bedrock of shared mind. Uh, Ogden described that as the analytic third. But so this is really the essence of psychoanalysis since around 1950, um, that countertransference is the bedrock of the therapeutic process. So, yeah, I mean, you entanglement is this crucial concept for you. And I'm wondering, though, about, you know, issues of identity. I mean, it sounds to me like I don't know. I just got the, the feeling that this was a really radical fragmentation of many of the concepts that we hold about ourselves, about who we are, about our own desires, you know, our own wants, wishes. I mean, this, what you guys propose is not only that we become other people and other people become us, but like that this is that, that we're we're outside of ourselves in that sense, but also in the sense that we're in other places and in other times. I mean, that's a, it's a really radical uh, version of self and identity at a time when, you know, identity politics is, you know, on the table. And when people are thinking about identity in, in w- whether they're ethnic identities or religious identities or personal identities or sexual identities or gendered identities, you guys seem to be saying something quite controversial. I the in terms of this basic notion of induction or becoming the other, um, uh, Rachel Blass and Sidney Blatt wrote a, a paper looking at fusion and merger states. That's that would be versions of Searles's notion of therapeutic symbiosis or not. Uh, Spatz's notion of narcissistic transference. These merge states of becoming the other. And what they discovered, at which it was at one time thought of as psychotic transference, they described, psychologists, mind you, studying it empirically, described it as normative states that people repetitively experience throughout the lifespan. And the role of this process of becoming the other is about identification. You become yourself by, by in this transitory way, becoming the other. So it has to do with the growth of the self or how the self grows. Uh, if you want to grow, you have to get out of yourself first and become another and then reintegrate yourself as a new self. 
So that, that was the essential psychological model for the growth of an identity through this sort of merger or narcissistic transference state. Now, I think I've said enough about psychoanalysis, <laughs> frankly. Okay. But, but there is a huge section. You did mention that this, this, there was a significant change in 1950. Right. right? And, and you chart in the book a long history of, of how psychoanalysis has dealt with this. And you take some issue with Freud. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, well, one fundamental thing, obviously, is telepathy, which thought transference would be clearly an example of shared mind, right? Like, um, I'm not quite sure who dreamt first, if either one of us did, waking up dead, but it was certainly a shared experience, uh, a kind of indication of a telepathic mind between the two of us. Uh, Freud would struggle with the notion of telepathy for his whole career at the end of it saying, okay, okay, I believe in telepathy. All right. It's like my Jewishness, my smoking cigars. Okay, fine. I believe in it, but it's alien to psychoanalysis. He says, well, of course it isn't alien to psychoanalysis because his whole model was based on a one person model, a hermetically sealed solitary mind, which telepathy disavows. So it, it, he couldn't accept telepathy because it really undercut what his whole project was. So that therein lies his, his fundamental conflict. And Frank, for you in the treatment, do you, do you experience these types of telepathic uh, phenomena with, with Dan? Well, the, one of the things I think the beauty of this is that, you know, all of what he was talking about uh, is Dan. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't ever consider it. I don't think about it. I've never read about it. I don't know anything about it. And honestly, don't really care. Mm -hmm. But what's going on then? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what's okay. going on? What the effing is going on here? If he's in this world and I'm in this world, what happens? Well, you know, this idea of convergence, in my mind, is sort of this mathematical kind of logic convergence, which basically states simply the property that different transformations of the same state have a transformation to the same end, end state. So Dan is, has this state of this psychological view of things. And I have this other view of the world, but somehow we become the same. We occupy the same end state, uh, which is where he becomes me, I become him. We think about these things, that we pass these thoughts. I mean, there's dozens of incidences where, where you know, I might be thinking about something and he's thinking about the same thing. I don't know what all that means in psychological terms. All I think about is this, that, you know, no matter where we are or what our identities are, we're sharing. This. It's so Maybe true. It's so true. This happens. It's uncanny. And it happens almost weekly in sessions that we can report that we've had very related experiences or thoughts during the week. It, it's just, it's uncanny, really, the frequency with which that, that occurs. Let me, there is, was really a great event, which we haven't mentioned or haven't discussed, but um, I had 
during the when Frank was writing his book, this is well before I um, I asked if we could collaborate on working on a book together. So this is we had about a three year period where after the dream of I woke up dead, where Frank was writing what would become a novel, and I was in a parallel way writing about Frank uh, writing. Um, and so we had this gestation period in which we were both writing. During that period, I had an event, which one day uh, on a Friday morning when I was heading off to see patients in New York, I live on Long Island, 60 miles away, so I need to catch a train to do that. So I leave in the dark, and as I step out on the porch of my home, I think flat tire. And I walk up to my car, which is in the dark, even with a porch light, I can't really see if it has a flat tire or not. And I figure, well, I'll roll down the window. And if I, if I have a flat tire, I'll hear that awful sound, that squishy sound. I didn't have a flat tire. And I headed off on a driving. It'll be about a 30-minute drive to get to the train station. And I'm on, I merge from one highway onto another. And while I'm merging, I, I want to uh, come off on, on a cloverleaf onto another highway heading south. And even though it's only 4.30 in the morning or something, there is nonetheless a car on the road in the right-hand lane that will not allow me to make this merge. And as this occurs, I think, buddy, what are you doing? Move over. What's the matter with you? Um, He probably was half asleep, like most people would be at that time of day. And I instantly think, I'll just step on the gas and speed up and and I'll, I'll merge ahead of him. And then I get a terrible feeling of panic. And right ahead of me on the cloverleaf is a person changing a flat tire. So I slam on my brakes and tuck in behind the other car, whiz by within really a foot, I would say, of this person who is changing a flat tire on the cloverleaf. Like, could there be a crazier thing to do in the middle of the night? Um, and I, very, I came very close to killing this person, driving 50 miles an hour around this turn. Now, so that was very harrowing. And I, this whole notion of having thought flat tire and 20 minutes later experiencing a flat tire, I had to wonder again, this is my future talking to me. I must have made this trip before. How could I have known that I would be encountering a flat tire? Certainly the, the, uh, the premonition of it primed me to be more conscious of a flat tire and certainly helped me avoid this life-threatening accident. Well, as things would work out, it turns out that Frank, in his writing, had described this event in a chapter, which was eerily parallel to what I just experienced it, and he wrote about it two months before I experienced the event. So there's a classic example of, of mind not being local, right? How could he write about an event that I had yet to experience two months before I, ha- I have the event, right? But that would be a classic example of what would happen between Frank and I. This is a significant revision of uh, accepted notions of causality. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is <laughs> yes. right. This is. Um, I mean, this is where the future causes the present. Right. It brings to mind that uh, the 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 movies, the Back to the Future movies. <laughs> Um, but future futures to the back, maybe, but it, it it's such an interesting, so th- this is about entanglement, right. And, and convergence and premonitions. And you seem to suggest that for modern psychoanalysis, this is central to the cure. 
uh, the notion of convergence and merger and this narcissistic transference is central to the cure, right? This notion of shared mind is central to the cure. And it's a very simple principle. This is what Ogden would say relative to the third. It's, it's essentially two minds are better than one. That this is the fundamental human way to try to adapt to overwhelmingly difficult circumstances is to enter into this merged state and take access of other people's minds to figure out what to do, right? So a, an evolutionary psychologist, uh, Patrick McNamara, would describe possession, for example, this historical notion of possession, which would be uh, another word for the objective countertransference of a situation of shared mind. And his point is that this was, it, it's the most elemental form of education. It's how we can make use of each other and what we each know to try to adapt to a very complex reality. So that was, that's his notion of it. That's why it exists, that it's the most fundamental form of education. Hmm. Frank, do you want to add anything to that? Well, you know, I think in terms of, of what we've done and of, and how antithetical that is to what is identity politics or identities where people are put in a, a single category again and again and again and again. I, I think what we really are talking about, and, and by the way, I, I'm not so sure this cure thing really exists. But, <laughs> That's uh, a good point. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm postulating there is no cure. All right. Uh, Fair but, enough. <laughs> but it is, a, uh, it is a weird word to use, I think. Yeah, yeah, and not apropos, I think, to any way to psychoanalysis, uh, which has created a very good living for many, many people. <laughs> I stole that from Mel Brooks, but <laughs> but you know, it sort of becomes, in my thinking, a meta identity. Okay, and this is not a new concept. I mean, you know, I know the only person I've read with any regularity is Jung because of, you know, his kind of spiritual and his collective unconscious, which I, I think is really an important idea. So instead of breaking this down to one superposition where we are all in this single state, different from other states, from each other, to a meta-identity, which is what I think that Dan and I have, uh, this has occurred with to us many times. And that story he told is one example, I think. And, 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 and it's a, just a general breaking down of that. Uh, and that, that's what the convergence to me is, you know, that, that we have these different transformations of our experiences, him through psychoanalysis, me through maybe the science fiction you know, quantum world, and uh, but we end up in the same place, in the same end state, which is this kind of meta identity. We we have just about five minutes left, which is unfortunate because there's so much more to cover uh, in this book that you've written. So I, I wanted to just ask before we wrap up, what is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd really like to? discuss from the book? I think one thing that would be valuable for the listener, since this is, a, I think, a fairly radical 
uh, idea that an analyst and a patient would work together jointly on a project, a book, uh, and a book that reveals aspects of the treatment. Um, I think it's important to ask Frank what, how that has affected him and how that has affected uh, his therapy. Frank? <laughs> Go for it. I need some prompting there, right? Uh, <laughs> I needed some prompting. Uh, you know, it's, it, I don't know if I can actually, you know, quantify that. You know, I don't know. I don't know because I don't know what the other world what of Frank, been, right? what, what, what the other world of where Frank is in it and he doesn't have therapy. Okay. All I know is that uh, in my world, it's been the fact that Dan has been so accepting and uh, willing to take I, you know, I assume and I understand that there's going to be people who think that this is a mistake, that this is bad. This is not the way to go. I, I just assume that that's what there has to be people out there to, that are saying that. And to them, uh, I say, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but I mean, I think that the meta identity that we form together is a bond that I cherish. That's all I could say is that. You know, it's it's helped me in my creative process, which is important to me. Uh, he's a main character in my new novel, uh, as, and you know he's he's you know, he's been an important part of my life. And not not I don't look him as I, once a week. I go to this office, I sit down, and we talk about what's happening that that week or the week before. It's much much more than that now. Well, I guess one last question I have uh, is how have how have your colleagues responded to this that you wrote a book together? Is, has that been an issue? Have have there been issues around it? Has it been welcomed? What's the response been? Well, it has to be for Dan because I have no colleagues. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder what <laughs> your perspective would be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't had any um I think it's very quizzical for people. Uh it is a, a version of mutual analysis, of course. It's it's seen in this forensian sort of context. Uh so I I I think they're they're quite curious about it. Uh they think it I would imagine that it's very unique um and would be a very complicated and difficult thing for them to undertake. Uh I th I think if they read the book, they I hope they would realize how inevitable it was that I would take the position that I did. I think the book does have a kind of internal logic that does push in the direction of, well, this is why it worked out that way. And this is what we learned as a result of doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I do take that as a point of view. If we had, if... Uh, Anna O oh had participated as, as Frank has in, in the creation of her psychoanalytic story. What would we have learned about the unconscious if we had had both individuals speaking, uh, the patient and the analyst? I, I think we would I, we would be a lot further ahead. Uh, would be my view. Hmm. And lastly, um, 
guys got anything in the works right now? What's what's coming up for you two? Well, I'm working with an editor now on my second novel, what tentatively we said with the look in her eyes, uh, which ex- you know it kind of expands in it in uh, the concepts of the multi universe and uh, multiple outcomes, but also with characters struggling with life's suffering. And that's the real basic question. Uh, the acceptance that life is suffering. Well, what do we do? What do we do with that? Is a large, very large question. Uh, as far as the first novel and the yang element of that, the masculine element is clearly in that the journey west. The second novel is is much more yin oriented and with the feminine energy of the female shaman and so forth. So, uh, and I started a third novel, which is called Bent is the Path of Eternity, uh, which is based on a, a premise by Friedrich Nietzsche called The Eternal Recurrence, which I've always found to be fascinating. So I'm trying to illuminate that in a story. Beautiful. And, and Dan? Um, I'm continuing the same kind of project. I, it's, it'll take a slightly different form in this next version, so I'm working on some stuff related to that. I guess I'd like to end by just highlighting Frank's first book, The Journey West, uh, in that uh, really these two books were written in parallel. And although we spent a lot of time talking about the one we jointly co-authored, it, it was so derivative and based on the ideas that uh, were developed by Frank in his his book, The Journey West. So uh, that that book's available on Amazon, and I hope that you know people will take a look at that uh, as well. So I guess that that would be my parting word. I guess. <laughs> yes. Is he angling for some fee splitting here? <laughs> <laughs> but I thank well, you for the plug. Yeah. I I've really enjoyed talking with you, and I so enjoyed the book. It really has. Um, change the way that I'm working and I'm confident that you know other people who pick it up will certainly enjoy it as well. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.